So hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. Now way back in September 2017, approximately 150 episodes ago or so, I had my first ever guest on the show, it was Phil Torres, and interviewing him was such a great experience that it actually sort of inspired me to have several other guests on the show since, and uh, we've sporadically stayed in touch I think over the last three years since he's been on the show. And um, it seems highly appropriate then that he would be our first ever repeat guest. And it may not have escaped anyone's notice that we're in a bit of a catastrophic risk crisis at the moment, and Phil has devoted a huge chunk of his career to studying existential risks. It's the kind of career where I think you never really want to be all that relevant, but unfortunately that's where we are at the moment. Um, So we'll start by talking about the coronavirus specifically, and we'll move on to Phil's recent work more broadly later on. So Phil, first of all, thanks very much for coming on the show. How are you doing in the midst of this crisis personally? Thanks a lot for having me. Um, It's really wonderful to be back. Um, I am doing okay, although, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, this is not the, these are not the topics that I've, I've focused on in the past. Um, these are not things that I want to, um, you know, to actually <laughs> happen in the, in the, in the world. It's, there's a funny aspect to the field of global catastrophic risk studies, um, namely that its ultimate goal is to eliminate any reason for there to be a whole bunch of scholars who are focused on these issues. Um, so it, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's very weird having talked about and thought about these, you know, global pandemics and so on uh, in the abstract for so long and, and sort of pondered um, as clearly as possible the implications and consequences and so on of a global pandemic actually happening. And then to kind of be in the midst of this actual situation, it, it feels um, very weird and unsettling um, for me, as I as it does for you know many people around the world. But ultimately, I'm hanging in there, and um, yeah, doing okay. That's good to hear. Okay, let's start by talking about the coronavirus then with the standard disclaimer at the start that neither of us are virologists or epidemiologists. I think we would describe ourselves probably as just people who like to listen to and read the words of experts. And of course, also that the situation with this pandemic is evolving very rapidly. And so the things that anyone says now could could well be disproved in the course of a few weeks. But um, but one thing that really strikes me just about this crisis in general, regardless of how it turns out from now, uh, over and over again, is just how foreseeable it was. A novel coronavirus transferring from animals to humans is something that happens pretty reliably every decade or so. We saw it with SARS, we saw it with MERS. We know that there have been other viruses that are zoonotic in origin that come from animals and move onto people. In terms of the pandemic itself, the situation bears a lot of similarity to flu pandemics, which occur quite often. We think of swine flu in 2009, and of course, everyone is now learning a lot more about the Spanish flu in 1918-19, which was perhaps the last pandemic comparable to what we might expect from this one. Um, If you were drawing up a list of likely catastrophes to strike in the future, it would be pretty near the top. And it's not just us saying this, there was a modelling exercise, uh, Event 201, from the Centre for Health Security, which Bill Gates has been involved with. Now, in October 2019, the very scenario that they picked for causing the next pandemic, which is something that Gates himself has been warning about for a long time, was a new coronavirus that transmitted across to humans. And just a month or so later, the first cases of that actually happened in reality. So given how predictable this was, uh, how is it that the world seems to have been caught so flat-footed by it? And do you think that they have been? Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like there are regions of the world that um, weren't caught so flat-footed. Um, I've I've read some statements by 
officials in South Korea um, who did who did acknowledge that they were quite surprised by the rapidity of propagation among the population. I, I think you know they had their first thirty cases, uh, and nothing seemed to be particularly out of the ordinary. And then patient thirty-one, so-called patient thirty-one, was a super spreader, and the cases went up from like you know thirty-one to two thousand in a very short amount of time. But nonetheless, um, and I think maybe we'll talk about this uh, a bit later as well. But um, yeah, they've done a pretty good job. But you know, it, you know, I'm here in the U.S. and am profoundly disappointed in the uh, incompetent, uh, dangerously incompetent response from the the Trump administration. And I think part of the flat-footedness can be perhaps traced to the just the zeitgeist of anti-intellectualism that uh, imbues um, American uh, culture. Uh, has you know f- for the for the past few decades, um, you saw this with the George Bush administration, and then um, the the rise of politicians like Sarah Palin, uh, and so on. Where you know part of the anti intellectualism is you know it's tied into uh, the the rise of populism, um, which uh, has resulted in you know a disparaging of expertise of scientific knowledge, and um, consequently you have you know, individuals, informed individuals, epidemiologists, virologists, immunologists, and so on, um, as you mentioned, who have been warning uh, about this possibility for quite a while. And it's fallen on deaf ears because people uh, distrust uh, individuals who, you know, have spent years and years in uh, universities, uh, you know, actually researching these Issues and of course, you know Bill Gates, who you also mentioned. You know he now famously uh, warned about the possibility of a pandemic uh, in a TED talk from a few years ago. Um, so yeah, I th- I think you know a, a lot of it is it has to do with a sort of pervasive distrust of science and expertise, and I think that has been you know an engine of that kind of. Um, of that sort of epistemic attitude has been, you know, right-wing media and right-wing politicians, again, from sort of, you know, George Bush administration all the way up through Trump. And it's, it's finally, um, you know, it's, it's no longer just annoying for people who care about truth, but it's actually costing uh, human lives and devastating the global economy and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I would definitely agree with you that, one of the aspects has been the disdain for expertise. The other thing that I think, um, and I'm sure you'll probably agree with me on this, is the way that we consume our information has changed quite radically, even in just the last 20 or 30 years, where now a lot of people are getting information from Facebook, from Twitter, from the plethora of news websites that are available on the internet, many of which you know are not uh, subject to the same kind of editorial guidelines that might have uh, been present in the past, although of course there's always been scandal rags and newspapers that tell lies and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, there, th- there is this this strange world of Twitter, and I, I know we're both Twitter users. I use it quite a lot, but <laughs> even in that context, um, the, the epidemiologist and the random person with an opinion are presented to you on the same platform as almost equivalent voices. And absent or not a blue check mark telling you that someone is supposedly in some way more important than someone else, although perhaps not 
an epidemiologist or a professor, but maybe just someone famous from the media or whatever. There is no immediate way to distinguish uh, who's right and who's wrong, and it can sort of it can sort of seem that we're in this situation. And it, it, I think it's part of this culture of anti-intellectualism that you mentioned, where my opinion is as good as your expertise is is the standard that people are going to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's completely right. There there is uh, definitely a, a deep um, you know, arguable, um, profound problem with the elevation of non-expert voices to the same level as as voices who um, are expressing, you know, expert uh, insight about various issues. Um, there was a really good, um, really good talk given by the actor and comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, and this must have been—I can't remember—six months ago or maybe longer, where he was. Um, you know, it 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 was surprisingly engaging and uh, cogent uh, discussion of the, the problems with like Facebook, uh, in particular, as well as Twitter and Instagram and so on. And there was a point which he referred to Facebook as the biggest uh, propaganda machine, the greatest propaganda machine that has ever existed in human history. And um, and that seems right. I think Twitter uh, just recently, uh, maybe you, you could uh, be more precise, um, uh, announced that they're going to start to censor dis- misinformation uh, about um, COVID-19, uh, you know, conspiracy theories and, you know, claims about, uh, um, you know, uh, cures, potential cures. Uh, like, you know, I know Alex Jones has gotten in trouble for advertising, you know, toothpaste that's going to kill um, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. Um, so I think Twitter is taking some actions. I'm not so sure if uh, Facebook is, but it is um, without a doubt. I mean, this is a uh, it, it is it is a catalyst for um, that enables the uh, uh, denigration of expertise that is just unlike anything in a, in a qualitative sense, unlike anything that's ever existed before, and it's it's very worrisome. I don't know how exactly to combat that, except to demand that these companies are much more responsible uh, in terms of filtering out false information than they have been. Yeah, I mean, they seem to have taken the position to me on a lot of these individual cases of saying, "Oh, we're a platform, not a publisher, and therefore we have no responsibility to um, mm-hmm. to uh, filter out these things." And from one perspective, you can sort of see that. From another perspective, though, a big part of me wants to say, yes, but you profit from this. <laughs> you know, yeah. you are profiting from keeping people on your website, looking at inaccurate information. And you have a social responsibility, if not like a fiduciary one, to yeah. actually do something about it. Because yeah. you have the power to influence people. And, uh, you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter, they, they have departments, research departments in their own in their own companies that will look into, oh, this is how we can swing an election this way, and this is how we can influence people this way, and so forth. And I think some of the things that they have done have been good in terms of uh, putting prominent notices about where official sources of information can be accessed. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing is good. It's also quite low effort compared to the massive uh, maintenance and uh, removal of false information that you need to do to actually make these places more reliable platforms in general. Yeah. Um, so it, it it's it's definitely an issue uh, that, yeah. we're, that we're coming into at the moment. If, and I think I may add, if if you don't mind, um, just I, I feel like there there's, you know, the deeper issue is, is sort of you know epistemological, 
Um, it's, you know, to, there are a lot of people out there, you know, it's, it's one thing for there to be um, a flood of uh, misinformation, uh, you know, out there on the marketplace of ideas, um, you know, contaminating the, the marketplace of ideas. But, but it's, a, it's another thing if, you know, individuals um, lack a kind of, you know, information literacy and, and aren't and don't have the, the epistemological tools to identify good information from bad information. And, you know, at least in the U.S., the uh, de-emphasis on the importance of education, um, I think, is, you know, it's the, the effects of that are sort of coming to fruition. Um, it, indeed, one of, I, I had um, written, you know, shortly after the election of Donald Trump uh, on November 8th, uh, 2016, that one of the the worst um, effects of his president, presidency, I think, is the normalization of bad epistemology. Um, this notion, that, you know, to, to use your phrase, you know, uh, my opinion is good as your expertise, um, you know, that you don't need you don't need evidence, you don't need to consider the totality of evidence when evaluating the um, you know, the, the uh, epistemic status of some, you know, proposition. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think there, there's just kind of like some really deep uh, philosophical problems <laughs> that are kind of ubiquitous in society. And these have really um, uh, have, have a lot to do with why people don't really care about, haven't really cared about what uh, the epidemiologists have been warning for the longest time, and many still really don't. They still uh, are willing to um, uh, ignore or uh, argue against uh, the advice of, of experts. So it's a bad situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. In, in some ways, I feel that I have been pleasantly surprised by the way that a lot of people have been willing to go along with this, uh, the, the sort of strong social distancing measures that have been imposed. And I don't think that necessarily it was clear in the earlier stages of this pandemic that something like what was achieved in China could be done here due to the difference in the government and the governing structure and the ability of them to enforce their will. It does seem like there has been a lot of adherence to social distancing at the moment. I don't know whether it's going to last for long enough to prevent new flare-ups of the epidemic, but I think mm -hmm. I think that's uh, I think that's been a, a pleasant surprise so far. And when when you talk about education as such an issue, I mean, obviously, I would go on about this as a physics student. <laughs> Mathematical and scientific education is is so important, and this kind of situation illustrates it because I know that in the earlier days of this, you'd see a lot of people saying, oh, a few thousand people have died of coronavirus compared to how many thousands per year that die of the flu. Mm -hmm. And you just think that you should be able, as an adult functioning in society, to see the logical fallacy there in terms of comparing something that uh, you know has already affected millions of people to something that is currently only affecting 10,000 people mm -hmm. and realizing that the fatality rate rather than the number of fatalities is the important thing. And an appreciation of the fact that uh, an epidemic would initially at least grow exponentially by percentages rather than linearly by numbers of cases, meaning that you really can't make statements like that about the early stage of an epidemic and assume that they will always hold true. I think that kind of the level of you know scientific and mathematical knowledge mm -hmm. um, could have helped 
not just people comply with the orders earlier on, but also helped those people put more pressure on the government to institute those orders. Because in, in Britain, um, I don't want to go too much into UK politics here, but there mm. was a perception that the lockdown um, should be delayed by uh, a week or two, basically, because they they felt that the British public wouldn't comply with it. And I think if there was evidence that people were more willing to comply with this and that they were calling for it earlier on, that could have made a difference. Um, and I think that could have come if we'd had a little bit better uh, scientific and mathematical awareness. And also, it's, it's not just education too. I think there's we have to think about the cognitive biases that make this kind of thing difficult to prepare for. And so there's this normalcy bias where people are, you know, I, I was thinking about the perspective of this from someone who's quite a bit older than me, and they might be thinking, well, I remember when they gave us these dire warnings about disease X, disease Y, you know, swine flu could have been one of them, uh, mm -hmm. Zika, Ebola, um, SARS, MERS, people might remember. Um, the, the sort of, the what that can do to people, I suppose, is, is make them desensitized over time to these kind of claims and it can make risk harder to assess for people and i think that's it's a you'd call that the survivorship bias i guess in terms of cognitive biases that impact people mm -hmm. and uh, the other thing that that shows up I, I know a lot in existential risk studies is not just survivorship bias but also if you do something that prevents something bad from happening then the effect of your prevention is never fully appreciated if you see what i mean yep yeah 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 absolutely uh, sorry yeah mm -hmm. so just if you'd want to talk a little bit about some of the cognitive biases that kind of that we expect to show up in in situations like this and that, and that have shown up so far yeah um i i do think it's it's really important to note that uh individuals who prevent something from happening uh particularly something that would have been um catastrophic so catastrophic that many individuals would have found it just the outcome unfathomable um, uh, that these individuals um, tend not to get the credit that they deserve. Uh, obvious examples would be like Stanislav Petrov and uh, Vasily Arkhipov, who were two individuals who, who essentially single-handedly prevented all-out thermonuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. Uh, Arkhipov's situation that happened, I think, maybe two days or so before the Cuban Missile Crisis ended, um, which is a lot of people have considered to be uh, one of the most dangerous moments in human history. Um, you know, if we re rewind history maybe two or three times, um, we, it, the outcome would very likely have been uh, a nuclear conflagration of some sort. So anyways, I don't mean to, to ramble too much about that, but um, most people haven't heard of Stanislav Petrov, uh, and that's because he did he prevented, you know, the outcome was a non-happening uh, rather than a happening, and a happening is, it tends to be a bit more conspicuous than a non-happening. So, um, yeah, it, it's um, other you know cognitive biases. Um, I think it's, it, that come to mind immediately are like scope neglect, uh, which is scope neglect and and what's called psychic numbing, which are very closely related, and more or less refer to our inability to respond uh, in a um, emotionally proportionate manner to disasters that have um, really enormous uh, effects. And then, of course, there's also the availability bias, um, whereby, you know, if, if examples of some type, some class of um, 
events are easy to recall, then one tends to judge the, the, the future instances of this type to be more probable than um, than others. So you know, it, you know, perhaps uh, this ties into what you were saying before that there have been uh, dire warnings in the past having to do with mares and SARS, uh, Zika, and so on that ultimately, you know, did not result in a 1918 Spanish flu type catastrophe. And so based on, you know, those past experiences, older individuals might be more inclined to, uh, to, uh, you know, manifest a kind of dismissive uh, attitude towards um, the COVID-19 outbreak. Um so I think, you know, central to the study of existential risk has been uh, a close uh, examination of cognitive biases and heuristics to try to defend against these, cog- you know, um, intellectually distorting kind of uh, influences. Only once you get rid of those can you sort of see things uh, clearly and guard not not just against uh, a tendency to minimize the risk posed by certain kinds of phenomena, but also when you study it, you know, when your livelihood depends on there being these threats in the future um, to guard against overinflating their probability and their significance moving forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it, it's interesting to see how there are even some examples of how this has happened specifically. I was reading a story in the news about France and apparently the health minister of France, when the swine flu uh, outbreak first started, uh, became very concerned and stockpiled a lot of PPE and a lot of equipment and a lot of uh, medicine that could help in that case. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, the very thing that we're saying, why didn't all our governments do this before mm-hmm. this epidemic, you know, in the early stages when it was easier to, to accomplish than it is now. And in reality, uh, swine flu was one of those illnesses where, although it did end up killing tens of thousands of people around the world, the fatality rate um, transpired to be a lot lower than people had initially thought. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the issues that comes up with lots of epidemics because the first lens you get on what's happening is people in the hospital with confirmed cases. And those people are obviously biased sample because they're they're in a bad way already. Mm-hmm. Um, that, so in that case, she was actually very strongly criticised. There was an inquiry after the fact um, as to why she'd taken these measures. And because, of course, it transpired that a lot of that PPE never got used. And I think the interesting thing there is it's it's like you say, we don't know uh, with hindsight whether her response was proportionate because if she spent a few million euros on PPE, it might seem like a few million wasted euros. If there was a 10, 20, 30, 50% chance given information that uh, the swine flu epidemic would have turned out like the coronavirus epidemic is turning out now, mm-hmm. it obviously would have been one of the best investments that, that could have been made by the French government at that moment in time. So I think it's it 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 really was a case that for me, and I don't know whether that had any impact on uh, France's preparation this time mm-hmm. uh, for the virus. But it was one of those instances that that drove home to me. Okay, this is something that happens in real life. It's not just something that we theorise about. Um, there are people who are being punished in a sense for being prepared uh, for things that may happen, and perhaps I don't know a lack of understanding about uncertainty um, is 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 helping us have all of these cognitive biases because it, it's always this question of how much is it worth spending uh how much resources do you allocate to something that has a one in a hundred chance of a truly catastrophic outcome and i think that's a an issue that the field of existential risks has has spent a lot of time trying to think about 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, that, that's absolutely true. And yeah, there's a weird sense in which, you know, if you want to be uh, lionized as a hero, <laughs> um, maybe, uh, you know, a, 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 assuming you're, you know, a particularly effective um, scholar who comes up with, you know, uh, useful ideas that are actionable, in, in, that can be converted into um, effective public policy, then existential risk really isn't your field because it really, it, it's about the preemptive avoidance of outcomes um, rather than, you know, just, uh, you know, res- responding to uh, some event that, that uh, has, you know, is global in, has global scope and that begins to unfold. Um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people uh, who don't have the right training do struggle with these counterfactual cases, uh, trying to, to, to grasp why exactly it was completely judicious for an individual or a government to use up finite resources in an effort to be prepared for an event that may be improbable, but if it were to occur, the uh, consequences would be huge. And of course, the the standard definition of risk um, is this the so-called expected value definition, which is that you know risk equals the probability of an undesirable e- event multiplied by its consequences. So you know even if you have a very low probability risk, uh, low probability event that's undesirable. If the consequences are really huge, then the risk as a result um, is uh, evaluated as being um, huge as well. And it seems like when it comes to that particular equation, people could mm-hmm. have assumed as soon as this novel coronavirus showed up in China, that actually now, at that stage, the the, the risk of something quite catastrophic happening Mm-hmm. should have been high, even if their assessment was only that, oh, there's only a 10% or a 20% chance that this ever makes it out of Wuhan or Hubei province or out of China and mm-hmm. causes a global pandemic. You feel like that's still going to give you, when you multiply that, that by the expected damages of a global pandemic, mm-hmm. um, a, a pretty significant indicator of risk uh, and, and preparation that was necessary. Yeah. And it just makes you wonder what, I mean, I'm sure after this, there's going to be a lot of inquiries into uh, what has happened in various different countries and investigations into the minutes of meetings and so on that we'll all be pouring over. Mm-hmm. It, 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 just, it just make you wonder whether people were thinking about risk in that sense and, and what they thought was worth allocating to this or whether... Because I think a big part of this that, that we deal with a lot in, in this field and similar fields is, is how people assess probabilities. Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily have a, a sliding scale in their mind. It's a little bit like ratings for movies where mm-hmm. some people will give a movie four stars or five stars. Some people will give it 78%. And you think, well, delineate for me the difference between a 78 or a 79% movie. I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, 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 and in our assessment of probabilities, we're quite similar. Things are either, you know, could never happen or quite unlikely, probably not going to bother with that or quite likely or certain. You know, we don't have the sliding scale in our heads um, automatically and heuristically to to try and assess these sort of things. Yeah. One thing that actually worries me. So this this is, um, I'm responding in particular to your statement that, you know, after the fact, there's going to be all sorts of studies and, you know, government reports on what could have been done better, you know, which, uh, uh, you know, what sort of failures led to um, more deaths than uh, were necessary. And I'm I'm concerned that um, the focus is going to end up being on pandemics, when the fact of the matter is that there is a growing array, um, you know, a, a constellation of different 
uh, kinds of threats facing humanity for the longest time, because I had been writing about this and talking to epidemiologists, we knew that another global pandemic was going to happen. On the one hand, it's we're in a little bit better shape than, for example, from 1918 to 1920, when the Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu uh, outbreak occurred. And I believe at the time, um, scientists did not even know, had not even identified the flu virus. Readers can double check, but I'm I'm quite sure that that's the case. So uh, so we're in a much better situation um, these days uh, in terms of our scientific understanding of pathogenesis and related phenomena. But at the same time, of course, we have international travel and you know uh, uh, globally interconnected economic system, which make us perhaps more vulnerable. So I mean, epidemiologists have have been sounding the uh, warning in a clarion manner for quite a while. And I, you know, I could go back to things that I, I wrote just, you know, I'm not saying this was an original point of mine. To the contrary, I'm drawing from their expertise, uh, saying that, you know, this is, it's kind of a matter of um, when rather than if it happens again. And the, the, my point is that we're in that same situation with respect to, for example, supervolcanic eruptions and asteroid impacts. And uh, and then there are emerging threats, you know, that have to do with engineered pandemics and nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and geoengineering. So some of these, you know, are unprecedented, the, the emerging threats, but other ones we know, um, just like a, a natural pandemic, it's just a matter of time before it happens. Um, you know, I think on average, a supervolcano eru- erupts um, once every 50,000 years or so. And um, I can't remember just off the top of my head when the last uh, one that uh, the last eruption was. It we're wasn't due the... the next one, I think, is the story that people say a lot. And we're... we could be due it within a, an error bar of 10,000 years or we could be due it next year. You know, we don't know necessarily. Exactly. Yeah. And there's been some very worrisome discoveries uh, that the, the magma chamber under Yellowstone National Park uh, under the, the supervolcano there is about twice as big as what was previously estimated. Uh, and you know, it's there's there's kind of you know, if you ask a geologist, they'll say it's it's a it's a bit um, uh, inaccurate to say we're that we're due because uh, there isn't just a timer that's that's going. To, but but there is nonetheless a sense in which um, you know Yellowstone, it's kind of due a little bit. You know, it could erupt next year. So this is something that we should um, we should be thinking about for the exact same reason that we ought to have been taking seriously the possibility of a global pandemic uh last year you know for the last several decades mm-hmm. and and so i suppose the question here then is and of course it's far too early to say this but do you think that the fact that people have now realized that things can head south that we that there's this sense of i mean i don't want to single anyone out but i was talking to someone about the pandemic when i first started to get worried about it which was sort of mid-february and i was it's obviously months and months after proper epidemiologists were going on and on about how this could be a really dangerous threat, which they were talking about from January. Uh, Mm -hmm. I only noticed a few weeks after China shut down its entire economy, which you thought should have been a sign to the rest of the world that maybe things weren't totally peachy with this uh, outbreak of novel pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was saying to people, you know, this could could come over here. And the the general response was just uh, this normalcy bias that came through of, no, it can't happen here. It can't get that bad here. Mm -hmm. Um, 
whether it's because we have too much faith in our technology or our institutions of government, whether a certain amount of it is is frankly Western arrogance that you know the, these things don't happen in countries like America or Britain or Europe, you know, and uh, they're, they're relegated to other places. Um, and and I wonder whether having this shared traumatic experience, which is going to, which is what it's going to be for everyone on the planet, really, mm-hmm. is is going to cast some doubt on people in the future who say no these disasters couldn't happen because we will have an example to point to and we'll say you know we have an example here of something that was thought to be a tail risk that turned out to happen um so do you think that will be the effect uh, that we'll see for existential risks in general after this or do you think as you say there's more of a concern that it might just be pandemics that we think about and not other issues as well yeah, I am worried that people will compartmentalize types of risks and they'll they may become uh more uh open to considering the possibility of future pandemics although even that I'm not so sure about. Um but I I I worry and I suspect that that the whatever new robust concerns there are for a future about a future pan- pandemic I suspect that those won't transfer to other types of risks. It's not going to heighten people's um, uh, um, sense that, for example, climate change is real. It's here. (laughs) It's going to have catastrophic, you know, just unprecedentedly disruptive um, socially, economically, uh, culturally, um, and and so on, politically uh, uh, consequences. So, um, that is a big concern. I mean, already, uh, you know, a lot of people have tried to tie climate change to um, this outbreak. There was an article in, um, I, I think it was the Telegraph or something on uh, Extinction Rebellion, where some some internal emails were leaked and and they, the guys were, the individuals were talking about um, essentially using the COVID-19 outbreak as a springboard to galvanize um, um, individuals into caring about climate change. Um, but so far, you know, and I, I myself have, have argued with various people about the, you know, if you're going to believe an immunologist, then you should believe a climatologist because the methodology and the epistemological uh, apparatus that's being used by one is the exact same that's being used by the other. And, um, you know, my, my own sense is that uh, a lot of people persist dogmatically in um, sort of rejecting uh, the warnings of climatologists about, you know, increased uh, carbon dioxide emissions. So, um, and also I just, you know, I, I, just you know, retrospecting um, historically, you know, th- through through history, um, I I just worry that humanity's not good at learning from uh, from the lessons of the past. There is a kind of historical collective amnesia, and um, you know, this this uh, fuels my sort of general d- dis- deep disappointment in the species, <laughs> you know. Um, Carl Linnaeus, uh, back in you know whatever it was, uh, 18th century or 17th century, um, gave us the the uh, classificatory bi- binomen Homo sapiens, which 
I've, I increasingly come to think is a misnomer because <laughs> it's, you know, the wise man. Um, so I, I do, you know, I can very easily imagine a world in a t 10 years from now in which the lessons just haven't been learned and the memory has faded. Um, we're right back to where we were before. And then in addition, the lessons that of this cat global catastrophe that is ongoing right now, that, that these, um, the lessons that should have been then uh, transferred to other risk domains like climate change and you know, nanotechnology and, and so on, um, that those will be non-existent as well. So we'll not be in a better situation. Uh, I know that's a bit pessimistic and a bit cynical, but but those are my thoughts. <laughs> well, that that's why we have you on to, to tell us what you're thinking um, rather than saying something else. Um, I mean, I think that when you talk about looking historically as well, you know, here's, here's, here's me trying to make this hopeful case that people will uh, look at a pandemic and say, oh, look, this means that tail risks are more likely to happen than we thought and things that we never thought could be possible can mm -hmm. occur. Um, I mean, one example that a lot of people are comparing this to, especially given the situation in, in New York at the moment, is 9-11. The September 11th terrorist attacks, I don't feel like the message that people necessarily got from that was these tail risks and this disruption to our way of life are more likely than we considered. It was more something that was quite narrowly focused on the importance of combating terrorism. And whatever you think or, or don't think about the efforts and the things that have been done uh, to do that and in the name of that over the last uh, 10, 20 years, it's certainly not the case that it seems to have made us that much more prepared for other types of disaster. I think that's right. I, I think that's, there, there's a more general moral to that, to that very unfortunate uh, situation, which is that these tail risks do happen and you know they can have really massive repercussions for for world history but yeah instead there was just a focus on uh on terrorism in particular and i'm not even sure you know those lessons were really effectively learned prior to those attacks there was you know so 1993 i think it was was when the there was the world trade center bombing and that was not perpetrated by Al-Qaeda, but by some individuals who ended up being affiliated with, with Al-Qaeda. Um, and there were individuals dur during that decade who were warning quite a lot about the possibility of a really catastrophic uh, terrorist attack. And they were, they were overwhelmingly ignored. And then, of course, 9-11 happened and, you know, 3,000, you know, Americans lost their lives. And kind of overnight, academic... Um, the situation in academia was there was no field, no discipline that was focused really on on terrorism, uh, because the overwhelming consensus was that you know state actors um, and the you know the the dynamics of um, between state actors is really that's the the locus of um, potential mm -hmm. conflict. Your kind of post Cold War politics, so to speak. Yeah, 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 exactly, um, and that kind of changed overnight, um, and. You know, I feel like there's basically there were a lot of people saying like this just can't happen. I can't imagine something. You know, just a group of individuals. You know, Al Qaeda at its peak uh, around um, 2001 was like maybe 500 to 1,000 individuals. You know, really small group. Um, I can't imagine that these individuals would um, would precipitate some kind of really uh, huge change in um, 
you know, in, in world uh, politics, world affairs and so on. So anyways, it, it's kind of a parallel situation a bit um, with the, the COVID-19. I think maybe studying the effects of 9-11 on government policy, on um, uh, academic scholarship and so on, though that that could provide some insights for anticipating how um, those entities are going to respond to this COVID-19 outbreak and whether or not there's really going to be more permanent positive changes as a result of this, uh, uh, you know, of this improbable but high impact event. One of the things that has been interesting so far about this pandemic has been how different countries and different authorities have responded, which we talked a little bit about already. To a certain extent, it seems like most countries now have tried to enforce some kind of lockdown, social distancing, uh, people staying at home and avoiding each other. That's been the main measure. There's good evidence and good basic science behind the idea that this will, at least initially, is going to help to control the spread of the virus. But obviously, it's had huge, unprecedented side effects that are very damaging for society and likely to be politically unpopular. And there has been a temptation to try and strike a balance between restrictions on movement and the projected death toll from the virus. And I think this is this is interesting as well, because when it comes to you know, trying to assess risks in the abstract, which is something that existential risk studies does an awful lot. Um, we we do think about these questions of, okay, is the economic impact of doing measure X versus the lives saved by doing measure Y uh, worthwhile? And we try to sort of understand how these questions work. But um, mm-hmm. what, what, what do you make of the different ways that governments around the world are tackling this problem and the the perhaps false dichotomy that's coming out now that it's a question between the economy versus saving lives. Yeah, um, as I sort of gestured at earlier, um, there are some countries, you know, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, that have done um, what appears to be a fairly good job at containing uh, the the outbreak. And I think what made the difference, uh, my understanding based on you know reading uh, you know commentary by uh, epidemiologists, is testing. That made all the difference. You know, when you have information about who is infected, then you can, you know, figure out who they've been in contact with, um, isolate and quarantine uh, as appropriate. And then you know that contrasts quite strongly, of course, with the the U.S. response, which has just been a, a blundering debacle. Um, it's it's hard to imagine how the Trump administration could have uh, done a worse job. I think. Well, it, to uh, to inter- to interject here, I think probably the moment where I really started slapping my head about the U.S. response was at some point quite early in the pandemic when there was a uh, a ship moored off California mm-hmm. um, that had a few cases on. And mm-hmm. there were a few cases on the mainland confirmed at that time in the U.S. as well. And Trump said that he didn't want the ship to land in the U.S. because that would, quote unquote, double the numbers overnight from yep. one th- ship that wasn't even our fault. And yep. that was the moment where I thought, my God, this is the <laughs> same person who is going to say, don't test because it makes us look bad. And yep. that's the exact opposite of of the transparency and the approach that is going to be necessary in the situation. And seeing the sort of level of high level kind of minimizing of this stuff. Of course, it's very difficult to know what impact a political leader has on the actual functioning of government to that extent. And I think the Trump presidency has actually been a very interesting experiment in in how much influence they do have. But totally as you agree. say, yeah. when, when that is your situation, um, and I know there was a very specific problem with the CDC tests and the way that was rolled out as well, um, mm-hmm. you can see that... that 
this is where the exponential really comes into it. If you have a chance to get on this thing early and start testing and contact tracing and isolating, you have an opportunity not to have to shut down your entire country to try and stop it from getting completely out of hand. Mm -hmm. Um, So the measures that we're seeing are sort of a failure of a route A strategy that would have worked much better if implemented much more robustly and much earlier. And that's why it seems like such a foresight failure at the moment. Sorry to just interject, but that was my perspective on the US anyway. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, I mean, that's really useful to, to say. Um, I, I think you're totally right that the, you don't need society-wide categorical lockdown when you have the data necessary to identify who's sick, figure out who they've uh, coughed on, <laughs> and, you know, and then quarantine those individuals. You know, the word you just used is a keyword, uh, foresight. I, I feel like if there are two words that that should that are inapplicable to the Trump administration. It's foresight and wisdom, and I feel like you know a combination of those, um, those you know intellectual and moral attributes, <laughs> um, really could have uh, obviated the situation that we're in now, uh, which is uh, yeah, which is really quite bad. Um, so you know, and at this point, I think it's. Um, you know, it's mainly just a waiting game. And I think the game ends when there's a vaccine. It could be the case that there is a really efficacious treatment that emerges as well. So even if you get sick, you know, you're, you're able to take your, you know, Dayquil, sinus cold flu and COVID, um, you know, and then you, you sort of, yeah, you can carry on. But otherwise, I mean, the, to get um, herd immunity, we either need to expose a lot of people to the virus and as a result, just allow a whole bunch of people to die or you get a vaccine. And I do worry here in the States about the the um, anti-vaxxer movement and the potential opposition that, uh, uh, you know, um, a mandate to, to become vaccinated might, um, the, the pushback that that might receive. Uh, from perhaps you know a, um, a non-trivial uh, uh, um, demographic of individuals, but um, yeah, this it, this is a um, you know a waiting game for you know maybe eighteen months, and I think we'll probably just go through these these oscillations of of uh, an outbreak and then sort of you know social distancing uh, measures, um, kind of stringent social distancing measures being implemented. And then the virus sort of disappearing and then another outbreak. Um, so, yeah, it's but a lot of this really could have been um, av- avoided. There are, there are, you know, plausible counterfactual uh, um, scenarios in which we, uh, you know, if, if first of all, if China had <laughs> had been more responsible and more transparent, um, then this might not have been, you know, nearly as, as big a deal. But also, you know, Western governments have just really dropped the ball and, um, yeah, performed very poorly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, the the interesting thing that strikes me about China specifically in this case is the fact that it's a very insular country. And to a certain extent, I wonder whether that has influenced any ability for the kind of the, the grand mechanisms of global governance to kick in here. I mean, there's been criticism of the World Health Organization. There's been criticism of the UN. There's been criticism of all sorts of people who we thought were going to, you know, step in and try and stop something like this from becoming a global issue. 
Um, it reminded me after the atomic bomb was first developed, you know, there was a big movement among scientists saying, okay, we now have to have one world or none. Either we need to stop all of these national divides and these things that are preventing people from cooperating um, and have some sort of global system for responding to outbreaks like this. Because, you know, this time it was China, the the Spanish flu, as you said, the so-called Spanish flu. There's evidence that that started in Kansas. Um, next year, it could... You know, it could be an illness that comes from Britain. It could be an illness that comes from anywhere that can mm -hmm. cause a pandemic. Um, now, of course, there are arguments about, you know, specific hygiene standards in wet markets and so on that you can get into. I suppose the point that I'm trying to make more broadly here is, do you think that it's going to be necessary to have some kind of global governance with much stronger enforcement and a much bigger budget and capability to... Uh, roam around and, and squash out um, whether it's outbreaks of uh, a new virus or even um, you know concerning organizations that could deploy bioterrorism or nuclear weapons or anything like that around the world um, that has that kind of uh, ability to project not just force but scientific and uh, medical expertise and might to different situations around the world to actually prevent this from happening um, at a level that far exceeds the sort of loosely bound federations of states that are the current kind of global governance that we have at the moment. Yeah, um, there was a really good article, Yuval Noah Harari, uh, in the Financial Times, and he had talked about you know there being a couple of critical choices that um, humanity can you know is, is going to have to make, and and one was between. Um, sort of nationalist, uh, as I remember him saying, nationalist isolation and then a kind of global solidarity. And he presented the argument that, uh, you know, um, uh, um, mitigating the effects of a worldwide pandemic is going to be f greatly facilitated by a, a kind of global governing system of some sort. And um, that seems right to me. You're, you're totally correct that after, you know, World War II, uh, and you know, which inaugurated the the atomic age. There were there were so many individuals who um, thought that you know there's a um, exclusive or here, either we're going to have a a world government or we're going to end up um, in in you know perishing in a nuclear holocaust. Um, Einstein, you know, of course was uh, was a vocal individual, but also there are many in. Um, the field of, uh, the, at the time, the sort of emerging field of international relations theory. Uh, there's an um, international relations theorist at Johns Hopkins University uh, named Daniel Dudney who refers to this as nuclear one-worldism. And um, and it, it was, uh, th these individuals were, were sort of, um, um, they found themselves in a really difficult intellectual position because on the one hand, they um, were neorealists. So they believe that you know the the um, you're never going to escape the you know there, there are certain dynamics between states that um, that uh, are evinced um, in the anarchic realm of international politics, but and that the only way to actually extricate oneself from this is to have a world government. But as soon as you have a world government, you risk tyranny because the world government could be taken over by some. Anyways, my point is that a lot of these individuals who believe that we probably were just going to have to risk tyranny in order to avoid, avoid nuclear annihilation um, uh, didn't, um, didn't really anticipate 
the particular uh, configuration of mutually assured destruction, which um, you know um, resulted in this kind of uh, quasi-stable um, balance of terror between the, the the two greatest world powers. But um, and the reason I mention this is that it's not the case. It's not the same situation with a pandemic where you can ensure safety with some kind of balance of terror. Everybody is, you know, the, the germ um, travels at the speed of a jetliner. It doesn't care about, um, you know, the, the boundaries of sovereign states. So um, I do think it's really important for there to be a uh, global uh, governing system of some sort that um, is able to responsibly coordinate the actions of individual states. And I think this is especially important uh, moving forward, given the possibility of, of um, bioterrorism. Uh, you know, I feel like the, the COVID-19 outbreak has been sort of proof of concept that, the, you know, there could be some malicious omnicidal agent who sets up a biohacker laboratory in his or her, you know, basement for, you know, $500, $600. And then you know synthesizes you know get, gets uh, data, um, a publicly available data about the um, genomes of various pathogens, and then modifies them and so on. And um, you know the, the COVID nineteen outbreak began probably with one individual. Um, so you know there's been talk in the past about bioterrorism. The the, the one of the um, uh, major hurdles being the uh, aerosolization of the pathogen. But I mean, with COVID, it was just a single individual who may very well have gotten the virus and then passed it to one or two individuals who passed it to you know one or two more individuals and so on. So um, in order to prevent a disaster associated with an engineered pandemic, um, it's, it's not enough that you know 90% of states are very responsible in terms of monitoring activities that could be potentially very dangerous. You need 100%. And perhaps the only way to get 100% is by having some kind of governmental apparatus that has um, you know, control, relevant control over um, every region of the world. So I don't know, it, it's, there are a lot of people in the field who worry a lot about this, this, uh, you know, the, the potential necessity of like um, uh, invasive surveillance, because that seems very undesirable. But at the same time, given the fact that a lot of these emerging technologies, like nanotechnology and biotechnology, synthetic biology, and so on, um, these are not only becoming uh, it, um, empowering individuals more than ever before, but they're also becoming more and more accessible to small groups and individuals. So they're multiplying the number of, of uh, you know, potential bad uh, non-state actors out there who could perpetrate, you know, some kind of um, global scale catastrophe. So it's, it's increasingly, an increasingly worrisome situation. <laughs> and then, as you say, with these technological risks, there's no balance of power and there's a multiplicity of actors. And you can't mm -hmm. really see a way out of that that doesn't require additional powers and additional surveillance capability on behalf of some authority that is going to try and prevent because it's it, you know if it's a case of we're no longer trying to prevent a rogue state such as north korea or iran mm -hmm. from getting a nuclear weapon we are now trying to prevent 
rogue organizations of groups of 50 or 20 or 10 scientists from developing laboratories that can do this kind of uh, incredibly dangerous work. It does make you think there's a political concept that is sort of on the on the libertarian right of politics, which is uh, minicism, which is this idea of what's the minimally acceptable government to have. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's the sort of thing that they're seeking. And it, it does make you wonder whether there's some uh, way of thinking about a structure of a government that would be a minimally acceptable global government purely for the purposes of surveilling and preventing against existential risks and what that government would need to be able to do and how you could try and hold it in check with the same operation of your uh, nation states that you have at the moment. And um, specifically speaking as well about this this question of surveillance and privacy, it's interesting because this is directly relevant to the solution that people are proposing to the coronavirus pandemic at the moment, which, as you say, is once we've uh, got through this initial wave uh, to have a huge uh, program of testing and contact tracing, which might be enabled by smartphone apps or so on. Indeed, the UK government today actually uh, announced that there was going to be such an app that is being tested as sort of an official NHS contact tracing app that people will use and mm-hmm. um there was there was a lot of you know there's been some people being concerned about this over the privacy uh arrangements for me part of the issue with that is that the loss of our privacy in the modern world is a fait accompli if you have a, a google phone that is capable of tracking your location google knows your location and they're currently using it to sell you things rather than to defend you against a, a deadly pandemic so mm-hmm. there, there is a there is a question to which we've already signed away all of these privacies or had them taken from us and you know there's shazana zupov's book about the rise of surveillance capitalism is saying that these are actually she views them almost as a resource that are uh, being extracted from us um without our consent or knowledge and i think there's Mm -hmm. certainly an argument for that um this question of this the enhanced surveillance to protect against calamities uh trade-off is something that's already being debated with respect to this particular issue yeah that's right um the the uh, um, security expert um, Bruce Schneier, who I, th- I think is at Harvard, uh, he had a book uh, that came out a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago um, called uh, "Click Here to Kill Everyone," and um, so he he talks about like the he's focused in particular on like cybersecurity, but he talks about the Internet of of things. I think he proposes the term the Internet of Everything because you know basically we're just surrounded by computers that do other things like refrigerate food. And and I, I I'm I'm sure lots of listeners have heard this. It's it's somewhat uh, hackneyed at this point, but you know our phones are just tracking devices. You can also make calls on and and browse uh, the internet. So, um, yeah, I I do um, I worry a lot about uh, surveillance. Um, you know, the, there's I I don't think there are that many dystopian novels from recent decades that don't involve. Uh, you know, if if there is a, a totalitarian state, you know, it involves surveillance, and um, uh, so uh, yeah, I, um, you know, the the I had mentioned earlier the uh, you've all know Harari article, uh, which is it's pretty good, and one of the things that he, uh, one of the arguments he makes is that when you have a a a, a population. Um, you know, a group of citizens who are poorly educated and are being fed misinformation and so on, then it's um, it's 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 kind of like cheating a bit to say for the government then to say, you know, people really can't be trusted. 
it's true that in given though given these conditions uh individuals can't be trusted to make the right you know to make sagacious decisions about uh how to behave whether to go out and commingle with 10 or more people and so on but if you have uh a citizenry that is well educated and understands the facts then th these uh you know that may be sufficient uh for them to take actions um on their own volition that on a you know collective level result in really good outcomes so you know that's sort of what you saw in south korea where um you know individuals the, the government was completely transparent here's what it means that you might be exposed here's why you need to be quarantined and then individuals you know um are well educated enough to to care about the what the experts have to say and then to, to you know to take the appropriate measures as, and you know as a result um, COVID did, it was not a catastrophe uh, in that country. Um, so basically, his argument, which uh, I find appealing, is that you know we have these technologies that are enabling us to gather more and more biometric data, you know, uh, you know, data about every aspect of our uh, of our of our phenotype, <laughs> um, and. The question is, do we want to then send this off to uh, to you know a big the big government, the big brother, um, and and offload the responsibility of um, you know of making decisions about what the right thing to do is to the government, or do we want to live in a society where individuals are well educated, they care about experts, and then they use these technologies to gather all of this biometric data, which they hold uh, privately. Um, it's not shared with the government, but then they can make you know responsible decisions on their own. And so he's he's sort of was suggesting that you know we've we may come out of this um, this morass um, either sort of like leaning towards a more totalitarian uh, condition or a state where the citizens are more empowered than ever. Um, and we have yet to see how things will turn out, but one clearly sounds better than the other. Although all of that being said, I'm not, I'm still not sure that um, that this uh, circumvents the need for some kind of surveillance apparatus in order to prevent things like bioterrorism um, and you know nanoterrorism and, and things of that nature. And increasingly in in the future, as these technologies place more and more destructive um, uh, destructive power in the hands of smaller and smaller groups. It is ever more important that you do not react to an attack, but you prevent the attack. And the only way to prevent the attack is to have gathered information about who is doing what, where, and that you know involves some sort of digging around in um, in the personal matters of individuals monitoring their behaviors. But that is not an outcome that. I, anybody, I think anybody in the field wants. So a lot of people are struggling right now to figure out how it is <laughs> that we obviate, you know, we, we effectively prevent um, some uh, lone wolf uh, terrorist, uh, you know, t terroristic group from uh, initiating an attack without also um, violating the privacy rights of, you know, every individual on the planet.
Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, I don't think it, I, I like the optimistic perspective that it could be possible to do this in a more voluntary ground up way. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would be great if that works out. And I think that in general, one thing that on the micro level has, has bugged me about this pandemic so far has been the lack of trust in the public. And I know there's this whole question of disaster management. I think if you're straight with people early on and you, you let them know the risks, um, the, you will get through it better than you will if you aren't straight with people and then they realize later on that the risk is worse than you told them it was that's when you actually get the panic response that people are trying to elicit by downplaying things by that people are trying to avoid by downplaying things early on so it's this question of having a, a public that is not just educated but also trusted by those in in charge to yeah. assess things properly and where we have some dedication to uh, explaining risks to people and letting them know what they can do to help as as part of citizenship. And it, I suppose it all comes down to things that we've talked about being eroded over time, uh, especially in the West, about in terms of trust in institutions and so on, that is going to make mm-hmm. these things harder and harder to coordinate over time. I mean, the, the, the one thing that I wanted to ask about as well is the, the, the treatment of scientific uncertainty in this particular situation. Because something something of this does remind me of climate science in the sense that a lot of key uncertainties are not even in our modeling necessarily but in how humans and society at large react to a given situation we know in climate change the difference between a two degrees celsius world which would be bad but survivable and a four to five degrees celsius world which would be potentially catastrophic in ways we can't even predict that that lies in what humans choose to do over the next century and mm-hmm. similarly here um it doesn't matter what the fatality rate or the transmissibility of the virus is whereas a huge level of uncertainty in what happens actually does arise in how people respond um, to what they're asked to do and i think this is the thing in terms of the human response while we're in the midst of this crisis that is hardest to predict especially in these scenarios that we've talked about where the lockdown drags out for months and months intermittently and goes off and on for the next 12 to 18 months Um, and in the context of this seeing the scientific uncertainties that are being researched being politicized makes me concerned that we might end up dividing into two camps of people who are essentially pro and anti-lockdown and mm-hmm. the, the nature of a lockdown is that it does require as you as you spoke about with this sort of voluntary surveillance for existential risks it requires buy-in from a huge fraction of the population to be effective so mm-hmm. i mean are you concerned about the politicization of not only the pandemic but also scientific research surrounding it and do you think there is anything that we can do to try and reverse that um given that society has already sort of divided into camps of people who are willing to do one thing or the other to contradict the other group um yeah i'm very worried about it i think i mean so my my sense um in terms of this solution this gets back to what we were talking about before where i i feel like it's the epistemological um orientation of individuals that is ultimately uh um the 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 fundamental problem you know there's so many studies showing that you know when you argue with people um uh over um you know issues that um are either true or false there's some fact to the matter and we know what what the truth value of the the relevant claim is that presenting them with facts, the more partisan they are, the more likely they are to, um, for their view to become ossified 
and rigidified and like for them to become more stubborn when you present them with facts that undercut their uh, their preferred view. So, you know, um, the be- you know the be- a better approach in debating uh, issues of fact with people is to ask them, well, why do you believe that? Like, on what basis? And these these sort of get at more of the you know epistemological sort of issues. Like, what is the method by which you came to uh, believe that? Well, I listened to you know so and so pundit. Well, why do you think that they're just weird? and so on? And that seems to be a, a little bit more. Um, fruitful uh so ultimately um, i was the, the idea is um that i feel like in order to change you know as people get older you know crystallized memory um increases and fluid memory decreases so people get you know sort of stuck in their ways and the the most hopeful um society wide strategy i think is just better education to inculcate into um, eager young minds uh, the importance of um, basing their views on the totality of evidence, of considering counterexamples, of understanding uh, cognitive biases like availability bias, confirmation bias, um, hindsight bias, and so on. And then you can start to have a reasonable conversation about these these threats in the world. Otherwise, you 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 know it's uh, the propaganda coming from, for example, the political right, uh, Fox News, and you know uh, Infowars and Rush Limbaugh and so on. Um, it's really difficult to, if if you will, sort of inocu- inoculate people against um, uh, you know all of these alternative facts, and. So I th- I think just you know reforming the educational system it's a long term you know that the, the effects are transgenerational in in terms of their their um, you know temporal unfolding and that's not useful with uh, short shorter term risks like pandemics are not really even that useful with climate change which is already devastating um, you know there are already climate refugees all around the world but um, yeah in the meantime. Science is completely politicized, and um, and I don't really have a good a good solution. Uh, as it happens, just you know, over the past couple months, I have for the first time in a long time tried to engage people uh, online. Uh, you know, this is like sort of classic, like you know, famous last words or something. Um, but I've tried to engage people mostly just for for ethnographic reasons and just you know elicited res- um, their views on certain things. Like, I, why why is it that you think the uh, the number of individuals who are dying from COVID nineteen is being inflated? And you know, um, what, what is that based on? And you know, why is it that you think the the models that climatologists are using are all flawed, but the models that uh, the epidemiologists are using should be listened to? And um, most of the interactions have have just sort of underlined, and this is anecdotal, of course, but they've underlined for me the kind of hopelessness of um, the, the the uselessness, the osios, the extent to which debate is osios. It just you know it doesn't. Um, it's really difficult to change people's minds. Um, and get them to see issues from you know new perspectives to induce a gestalt switch and and see things anew. So I don't know really what the answer is, but I do know that you know people in um, 
um, working in the field of global catastrophic risk and existential risk, one thing that's incredibly, incredibly um, uh, um, frustrating is that not only do we have to, not only is the task to identify the various risks that are facing humanity this century and perhaps beyond, as well as to devise, you know, by pulling from this huge multiplicity of, of different disciplines, scientific, philosophical, and so on, to, to devise um, effective strategies for mitigating these risks. But also, in many cases, you need a sizable portion of the, of the voting population to agree that these risks really are risks. And that's the third big challenge is just, it's, it's not just trying to figure out what the risks are. It's trying to convince individuals who um, are, you know, uh, hypnotized under the spell of, you know, some political or religious ideology that these really are threats that uh, could, you know, could, could push civilization uh, over the precipice or, you know, toss humanity into the eternal grave of extinction. So, it, and that sort of sociological or psychological task is just, is just the most exhausting. <laughs> it's, it's way worse than trying to understand what the risks are and how we uh, uh, neutralize them. And I think the thing that, the thing that perhaps saddens me a little about this is that I, I'm reminded of always in this situation in my own experience with climate change and talking to people who uh, are deniers of the science of climate change. And indeed, I've found myself with an experience of deja vu engaging with people who seem to think this pandemic is not as bad as it was. For example, there's a, there's a famous thing that is a cognitive fallacy and so on that people use against climate change that was used against evolution and so on, which was is the gish gallop type of argument, which is where people mm -hmm. present a whole bunch of arguments that are all specious and false in their own way. Um, and so with climate change, usually we'll have someone saying, well, CO2 doesn't cause warming. And then you show them it does. And they say, well, volcanoes are emitting the CO2, which contradicts what they said previously. And and then, mm -hmm. you know, you show them that the volcanoes are not emitting it. And then they say, well, you know, it's it's not the warming records are made up. And it's like, well, you've presented me with four or five different arguments to refute, all of which contradict each other. And I had another engagement with someone recently on the subject of the coronavirus, where at first they said, there's no evidence that uh, lockdowns and social distancing work. And then they moved on to, well, I think that most people are already immune and have had this anyway versus, you know, the, the fatality rate is probably a lot lower than people expect, or the economic mm -hmm. impacts will be worse than the um, the impacts directly from the pandemic. Each of those is debatable on its own. When you're being presented with five or six different points of view um, in a row like that, it, it just brought me back to the climate change issue. And I think the thing that really saddens me about it is, I mean, Catherine Hayhoe is a really good uh, person on this, a climate scientist who I think is from a university in Texas. I could be wrong there. Um, mm -hmm. And the point that she makes so often in trying to engage with people is there's no intrinsic reason that your political or uh, the, the cultural stance on things should change your view on issues of risk that affect us all. If you're a cultural mm -hmm. conservative, then you care about your community and you want them to do well. And your community is threatened by this pandemic. If you're economically on the right and you're interested in profit and uh, you know corporate um, uh, having an efficient <laughs> system of uh, of, of maximizing running profits. the world and maximizing profit for shareholders <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. The, the the glory of, of you know capitalism to to enhance uh, things for the human race. Well, a pandemic is bad for business. <laughs> you know yeah. there there's there are reasons 
the same could equally be said of climate change. If you're a conservative, you wish to conserve the world as it is. That includes what remains of the natural beauty of the world that we haven't already destroyed. There, there are reasons and arguments for everyone from sheer human compassion, which I think is present in most people, regardless of their political, religious, whatever beliefs there are that they have, mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. to wish the, uh, and to, to want to combat uh, this kind of outbreak that affects everyone, as you say, with no regard for national barriers or political beliefs or so on. And so what saddens me is seeing the politicization of this and the politicization of things that should never be politicized in the first place. The, mm-hmm. the, the argument between the left and the right should really be a question of, okay, to what extent do we need to have uh, private hospitals taking care of people versus public hospitals taking care of people? It shouldn't be an argument about this is or isn't a threat. This is or isn't a yeah. pandemic, you know? And yeah. it's the fact that it seems to have got so far to the extent that the knee-jerk reaction on response from one group of people has been to to downplay this and the response from other people has maybe been to, you know, if anything, say that it's worse than it is, um, is, is the thing that, that depresses me because it shouldn't be politicized. And yet it has yeah. been. And it's so hard to, as you say, to, to see how we can reverse that even if it just comes down. And I think also the, the, the process you outline of making people question, okay, what is your basis for believing this? I think that's something we all need to do um, rather than just something prescriptive. I mean, I suppose in lots of ways, it is the basis of the scientific method, isn't it? Saying, well, why mm-hmm. do I think this to be true uh, constantly? And if you can't convince yourself of it at the end of the day, then that's guides where your next experiment or your next theoretical uh push needs to get adventures yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um <laughs> so i you know i know there, there are some climate activists who are deeply upset at al gore for having released uh an inconvenient truth um that got him i think the same year got him as well as the ipcc the um, nobel peace prize and the uh, the reason for climate activists being you know exhibiting some indignation towards Al Gore for having produced this film is that is that that uh, the argument is that that made it a political issue and suddenly it was it was a kind of Democrats against Republicans but interestingly I mean if you go further back in um, you know in history to the period to you know early uh, 1980s uh, which was when the the nuclear winter hypothesis was was developed by a group of scientists uh, including Carl Sagan and in, in 1983, he published uh, he published several articles, some are in popular media uh, uh, magazines, summarizing the conclusions of this very technical uh, argument, which basically said that you know in a all out nuclear exchange nobody wins. Um, so you know mutually assured destruction, uh, mad, uh, then sort of evolved into self assured destruction or sad, and. Uh, you know, and and he was just viciously attacked by people on the right, by Republicans, by the you know individuals in the Reagan administration. Uh, there were all sorts of personal attacks. There were attempts to, um, you know, basically the idea was that he was proposing this nuclear winter hypothesis because he's a peacenik, and so he's trying to weaponize science for his, um to advance his own political agenda which is easing the tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um so even going back like you know 40 years uh there was still this kind of political right political left um 
you know, uh, anti-science, pro-science uh, kind of um, dynamic, which is really weird. Um, it, it's, I mean, it just reminds me also, I mean, another uh, issue that concerns me a lot is that there are, particularly in the U.S., well, I should say, you know, globally, the um, percentage of individuals who are religious is increasing. And at least according to a, uh, a one Pew uh, study from just a couple of years ago, uh, the, the, that, the, per- the percentage of non-religious individuals is falling from like 16% to 13% uh, from a few years ago to the middle of the century. And as a result, you're going to have more and more people who will view world events through a particular prism of religion. And also when it comes to uh, especially catastrophic events, wars, natural disasters, and so on, which are you know, in the prophetic um, uh, passages of Holy Scripture, they tend to be identified as harbingers of the end. So you will get, uh, I worry that a lot of people will be interpreting like climate change, um, even AI, uh, um, future pandemics as well, um, as as a religiously significant event rather than you know a scientifically um understandable phenomenon and i think that could result in a kind of positive feedback loop that just further exacerbates the the general um risk predicament that that we're in you've de- i've definitely seen it so far with covid-19 because i do intentionally um scroll through the feeds of various religious leaders um you know i was on um uh, Mahmoud uh, Ahmadinejad's uh, Twitter feed the other day, and <laughs> it's he's... the place to hang out, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I back in the day during like the um, the Iraq War, w- which I was uh, involved in as a as a, an opponent. Um, uh, you know, I I became fairly familiar with his um, his his beliefs, which were deeply apocalyptic. This is really quite fascinating. On multiple occasions to the um, G- um, UN General Assembly, he, he re- referenced the um, end of days uh, messianic figure in his own, you know, ver- his own twelver version of of um, Shiism, uh, namely the Mahdi. So that's a really significant kind of thing that he kept mentioning this messianic figure and talking about the end times. But anyway, so yeah, every now and then I'm curious what he's thinking about, and he's really been pushing this idea that. Um, COVID-19, or rather the virus that causes COVID-19, is the result of um, a lab. It came directly out of a lab, and it may very well have been synthesized on purpose, which is really fascinating. You get the same narrative among some right-wingers here in, in the U.S. Um, and But also, you know, scrolling through the, uh, you know, some well-known evangelicals in the U.S., there are just a lot of people who are saying, you know, this this is it. This is a clear, you know, the earthquakes all around the world. You know, there, there's uh, locusts in Africa right now, and then there's this plague, and you know, this really is, uh, um, you know, very strong empirical evidence. They don't put it that way, but of a particular eschatological narrative that they have already bought into. Um, on a few occasions, I've I've at, like very pleasantly asked some of these individuals, like, are you aware that like the Black Plague might have wiped out like, you know, half of Europe, <laughs> you know, like that? Um, uh, yeah, it was much more devastating than uh, than COVID, which is not to minimize COVID, of course, but 
yeah, so I, I, this, this is something that I worry about um, quite a lot. There being this, this kind of positive feedback loop where the worst things get, the worst they're going to get because people misunderstand the true nature of what's going on and um, don't understand the risks um, of these uh, hazards. And uh, it's, it's it's interesting. So so just briefly then, since we have mentioned it, um, I think we've talked about it a little bit already, but just this question of one of the things that we discussed in the past and that has been a focus of the existential risks community is some existential threat arising due to a bioengineered pandemic. The balance of evidence at the moment is very, very strong that the coronavirus is not such a bioengineered pandemic. And there's increasing evidence that the route for transmission to humans is the familiar one that's happened on numerous previous occasions. I think one of the issues with any crisis, and people talk about this in the context of even JFK getting assassinated, is it makes you a lot less certain about uh, the level of security in your world when you see these events occurring without some grand narrative behind them. Um, I mean, the, the case here is that SARS 2003, MERS 2011, it just so happens that this time we have a virus that is asymptomatic for uh, a proportion of people which aids transmission that is mild in a much higher proportion of people which also aids transmission and that wasn't mm-hmm. controlled in the same way those other viruses were those viruses had some advantages which made contract uh, contact and trace easier in that people didn't tend to uh, become infectious until they'd already become symptomatic and so it was easier to figure out who they were and they also caused much more severe illness which meant that the average person wasn't running around and still going to work with a mild case of covid uh they, they were in hospital with SARS or MERS. And and so it just seems that there's a, a few parameters of this virus that just happen to be different to uh, SARS and MERS that have made it a far more dangerous threat um, for us. And I think the, 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 the idea that this could happen by chance uh, is something that people don't necessarily want to accept, which is where conspiracy theories come from. And we've seen conspiracy theories surrounding this virus right from the start in, in January Um, there were conspiracy theories about it and um, coronavirus has illustrated in any case that there if in case there was any doubt at all the devastating impact that a a pandemic can have so although we don't think this is a bioengineered pandemic one can easily imagine a disease that's more deadly or has a longer incubation period or affects a certain group of people in a particular way or any number of other things and we know from previous experiments um, that you can reproduce uh, viruses in the lab if you want to as long as you have their sequenced genome. And one thing that struck me immediately when coronavirus showed up and I started paying attention to it was that the genome, the sequenced genome is available online. You can get it on t-shirts now if you want to. So this information Mm -hmm. about the (laughs) genomes of viruses, which I think there should be some kind of protection over given how dangerous they are, um, does not seem to have been controlled in any way. Um, So in light of what's happening here, do you, does this make you more afraid of bioengineered pandemics or do you think that in a kind of twisted way maybe it might make us more cautious and more careful and more focused on preventing uh, research into how things like this could be developed and really heightening the biosecurity around things like uh, genomic information now that we've seen what a pandemic can do um, in in reality yeah. Um, well, I mean, I guess this this um, points back to the conversation we were having before about the likelihood that that society will learn a lesson from 
<laughs> from this really unfortunate, uh, um, you know, snafu. And I feel I'm a bit, you know, pessimistic that uh, that will be the case. So I do worry very much about this. I, I think I mentioned before this is sort of proof of concept that, uh, you know, you could synthesize um, a, a pathogen that, uh, you know, could, could, you know, maybe be aerosolized just in one location, um, you know, in a single uh, um you know, subway area, and maybe that could actually spread around the entire planet. So it's it's incredibly worrisome. But I mean, years ago, there was a Global Challenges Foundation report. They put out, you know, annual reports uh, on various topics. And I, I just um, co-authored one with my colleague, Simon Beard, on, on governance and existential risk. And but there was one several years ago that went through, it was, you know, a, a really broad, comprehensive survey of existential hazards. And in the discussion of natural pandemics, they were explicit that it's entirely possible that you might get um, cooked up in the laboratory of nature um, a pathogen that combines the lethality of rabies, the incurability of Ebola, the contagiousness of the common cold, and perhaps the incubation period of HIV. And, you know, when you tweak the parameters to get a germ like that, I mean, that's that could just, be that's world ending. really, it's, it's potentially world ending. And it's interesting because it's sort of thinking about these issues in the abstract and then, um, you know, uh, having exchanges with epidemiologists in the past, there was a fair amount of skepticism from myself, which is mainly parasitic on the skepticism of, of other people who know much more than I do, um, about the possibility of a pathogen spreading around the entire world. But I feel like the, you know, one of the, as you were just mentioning, one of the really unfortunate uh, properties of the um, SARS-CoV-2 germ is that it does have this um, you know that that asymptomatic individuals can uh, transfer the, the the germ, and that um, I think like the um, serial interval is just a little bit shorter than. So that's the point when you become contagious. It's a little bit shorter than the average um, incubation period. So there's there's just a greater chance of it uh, propagating through the population. And so this is just underlined to me, and it's it's just made more vivid. Th this uh, claim that it's possible for there to be a long incubation um, germ that really does spread around the entire world and make its way into, um, you know, some villages uh, that are, you know, secluded up in Siberia or um, Villa Los Astralis in Antarctica, where there's, I don't know, 150 or something scientists And that's the end of the first part of our interview with Phil Torres. Remember, you can find the show, Physical Attraction, at www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the links uh, to our Patreon and our PayPal and the contact form, which you can contact us on. You can catch up with Phil's work at xriskology on Twitter and at www.xriskology.com. Uh, you can help him out there. He also has a Patreon, which you're uh, obliged to subscribe to if you wish. And you can buy his books. Uh, the most recent one, I believe, is morality foresight and human flourishing but there's a new one coming out soon so it's very much worth keeping your eye on those things um, until next time then take care <laughs>